Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Joel Lawrence. Uh, my family and I have been here at, at ECC for a couple of years. Uh, prior to coming here, I was the pastor of a church, and I've been a seminary professor. And Chris has, Chris has asked me to come and to open up God's Word with you over these next couple of weeks while while he's up at camp. So I'm really delighted to have this opportunity. I want to invite you, if you would, please, to pray with me as we begin this time together in God's word. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the opportunity that we have to hear you speak to us. I pray, God, that that as we are listening to your word, that your spirit would move in our hearts and in our minds. I pray, God, that you would meet with us in this time. And we ask that in all of the, the thinking that we do and the reflecting that we do, we pray that you would be glorified. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, uh, Chris ended his sermon, uh, the first sermon in this series on identity and gender, talking about the movie Hoosiers. For those of you who, who weren't here, who, who didn't hear his message, Hoosiers is a story of a man named Norman Dale, who was a, a washed-up college coach who went to, to coach in a small town in Indiana, coaching high school basketball. And when, when he comes to this town, he, he finds players that, that love basketball, but he starts to break them down, kind of drilling them on the fundamentals. He says that they have to do four passes every time down the court. They need to learn how to move the ball. They have to, to learn how to get a good shot because he knows that if they're going to be a good team, if they're going to have success in the game, that they need to focus on the foundational parts of basketball. One of the key things that that we heard over these last few months as Emmanuel Covenant was kind of moving towards this series and we were having listening sessions and, and, and talking to people about what they hoped to get out of this series. What was it that they wanted us to cover? One of the things that was very clear is people want practical advice. They want practical steps of how to understand the terminology around issues of identity and gender. How do we make decisions for our kids? How do we make decisions in our, in our workplaces? How do we navigate terms? And, and, and what do we do with different policies around the questions of gender and identity. And and we're going to do that. Much of this series is really going to focus in on that. But before we get there, we need to focus on the fundamentals. And so this Sunday and next, while Chris is up at camp, we're going to be here drilling in the fundamentals. I get to be Coach Dale, running us as a team through some basic drills, learning how to pass the ball four times, learning the plays. And my request to you is that you would commit to these fundamentals. This conversation on gender and identity demands the best of us. It demands that our hearts and our minds are deeply engaged. This Sunday and next Sunday, we are going to be digging into some 
challenging things. We're going to be digging into theology. We're going to be digging into philosophy. We're going to think about some of the history of ideas. We're going to be digging into the scriptures and what they have to say about identity, about what our culture has to say about identity. So I'm asking all of us to give our best to this conversation. I'm asking us to be patient, not to jump to conclusions, to assume the best of one another, and to be filled with grace. So how do we have this conversation? This is a difficult conversation. That, I'm sure, comes as no surprise to anybody. The questions of human identity, the questions of gender, are perhaps the most charged issues in our culture today. Why is it so charged? Why is this such a difficult conversation? I think it's important for us to identify kind of where we are culturally, why this conversation is so difficult to have. I think there are three primary reasons, lots and lots of reasons, but there are three primary reasons why I think this conversation is so challenging. And if you have the the, the outline, you can write these down in your notes. The first reason is that identity and gender are so deeply personal, right? This isn't an academic debate about irrelevant matters that don't impact our lives. This conversation centers on the most personal, the most profound aspects of human experience questions of identity and gender reach into the deep places of human existence. And people have been deeply hurt in this conversation. They've been hurt in their own personal wrestling with questions of gender. They've been hurt through experiences of judgment and condemnation that they have heard from the church. They've been hurt through divisions and families that have been deeply wounding to people. They've been hurt through the sense of rejection and a feeling like they don't belong. This is a deeply personal conversation. And I think the second reason why this is such a challenging conversation is that identity and gender take us into America's sacred ideals. Think about the sacred ideals of our culture. Individual liberty, the primacy of the self, the right to self-determination, the pursuit of happiness, freedom from discrimination, equality. These are things that our culture holds as sacred. I think these values are rightly to be called sacred values because American culture has invested religious significance to these values. Even people who don't believe in God, who make no claims of any kind of a faith in a higher being, believe in the transcendent value of these sacred things. These values have become the new orthodoxy of our time. 
and they elicit the passion of wars of religion because they are the content of our culture's modern faith. That brings us to the third reason why I think this conversation is so challenging to have. Identity and gender take us into the heart of the culture wars. Over the past few decades, America has been divided in a cultural division, which has opened up into a massive chasm over the last few years. Why do the culture wars rage? What drives the culture wars? The culture wars rage because we have different visions of how the sacred things should shape our society. Are you going to have two different Americans who can have a shared value for liberty, but have very different visions of how liberty should be lived out and what liberty should mean in our culture. You can have two Americans who have a shared vision of pursuing happiness, but have very different interpretations of what a legitimate pursuit of happiness means. And these divisions raise the very important questions of who has the power to control the sacred things? Who has the power to determine whose vision of the sacred is correct? Who has the power to regulate whose self-determination will be lived out when one self-determination is in conflict with another self-determination? I might self-determine one thing and you might self-determine another thing and those things might come in conflict with one another in the way that they both can't coexist. Who has the power to determine who's right? Who has the power to shape the morality of the culture? So left and right are in conflict. Red states and blue states are in conflict. Urban and rural are in conflict. Families are in conflict because there are competing visions about how society should be organized around the sacred things. This is why our politics has become such a desperate zero-sum game. Our vision must win, and your vision must lose. We must have the power to protect and enforce our vision of the sacred things against your vision of the sacred things. The heat of the culture wars the heat in the American political, uh, political culture is a fire born of the battle over the sacred things. So again, I ask, how do we have this conversation? It'd be a lot easier not to have this conversation. It'd be a lot easier just not to, to tackle this. But one of the things I so deeply appreciated about, about ECC is that We've made a commitment not to duck the hard things, to have these conversations as a church family. But as we do it, we want to do it in a way that doesn't perpetuate the culture wars. How can we do this in a way that doesn't divide our congregation? How can we do this in a way that doesn't leave us taking up arms against 
each other. As I said, the, the questions of identity and gender take us into the deepest commitments of our culture. And it's these commitments that have really shaped the conversation and set the terms for how our culture approaches questions of identity and gender. But for the church, this creates a challenge for us. Because as those who belong to Jesus Christ, we are told by the Bible that we are citizens of heaven, that we belong to another kingdom. And this citizenship places us followers of Jesus Christ in a different story than the story that shapes our culture. Our culture has very particular definitions about what it means to have life, what it means to be successful, what it means to be good, what it means to be happy, what it means to be human. But as followers of Jesus Christ, we live from a different vision of what it means to be human. We have committed ourselves to Christ. We have accepted his call to follow him, taking up our cross. We've embraced his call to lay down our lives. In other words, as, as followers of Christ, we inhabit a different story. We live according to the story of the cross, and that is a story that turns upside down the stories that our culture tells. Unfortunately, one of the problems that we have as the church, one of the challenges that we have in coming to this conversation is that the American church has not often been shaped by the story of the cross. Instead, we are caught in the world's pursuit of power. We are caught in the world's anxiety and anger. We are caught in the political zero-sum game, pursuing power by entrusting ourselves to political leaders, turning to strong men to protect us, condemning people who don't vote like us, and so demeaning the name of Jesus Christ as we pursue power. I think it's critical that we recognize at the outset here that the question before us isn't, should we be liberal or should we be conservative on the question of identity and gender? Liberal and conservative are categories that arise from the story that the world tells, not from the story of the cross. Instead, we must ask, is our vision of identity shaped by our story? by the story of the triune God and the cross of Jesus Christ. So my purpose over these next couple of weeks is to run us through the basic drills, to take us back to foundational texts of our faith, texts that lay out who God is, why God created the world, how that defines humanity, what has gone wrong with humanity, and how all of this should shape our vision of identity and gender. So to do this, we need to compare two different stories. The one that we're looking at this morning is the in the beginning story, going back to Genesis chapter one and seeing from the beginning what God intended in his creation. The next week, we're going to be looking at the in the now story. We're going to be looking at how we've gotten to where we are, what our 
culture defines as being correct around issues of identity and gender and how our culture has gotten to this place. So let's turn now to the in the beginning story. As we turn to the very beginning of scriptures, as we turn to the creation account that we find in Genesis chapter one. The very first verse of the Bible says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. These 10 words are the beginning of a majestic and sweeping story. The story of the heavens and the earth and all that is created in them. These 10 words declare fundamental truths about the universe. They tell us that the universe is not here by accident. The world that we live in is not a mistake. These words tell us that the world exists by a willful act by Yahweh, the Lord, the creator of the heavens and the earth for his purposes. The story tells us that over seven days, Yahweh, the Lord, ordered the heavens and the earth so that they would be a theater of his glory. The seven days of creation tell us that that God created with purpose, that God created with conviction, that God created with goodness and grace and love. And in days one through five, we see a a pattern that is repeated. If you read through Genesis chapter one, you'll you'll see this pattern. That as God creates in, in, in a new day, it says, and God said... And God said, let there be light. And God said, let there be waters. And God said, let there be fish in the sea. And it was so. And God said, and it was so. As God spoke, birds and woods and oceans and stars came into existence. And then on day six, something unique happens. If Genesis 1 was a movie, day six is as if the director calls for the cameras to push in on a tight shot, to zoom in on the scene. Right? We go from this kind of sweeping grandeur of the creations of the cosmos now to a focused, zoomed-in scene a close shot of of intimacy and care. We see this in verse 26 of Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. Notice the, the change in language here. Let us make. Up until now, it's been let there be. And God saying from 
the outside, let there be and things are happening. But now he is involved in a unique way. This, this language signals an investment of God in this creative act. And it signals for us, it tells us that a new thing is happening here. What is that new thing? And God said, let us make mankind in our image. This is the new thing. The image of God is being created on earth. It didn't exist up till now. The birds don't image God. The trees don't image God. The stars don't image God. Something unique is happening here. Humanity is being created in the image of God. But what does it mean to be created in the image of God? What does this tell us about human identity? When I was a baby, uh, my mom took this picture of me and my dad. That's pretty awesome, right? I mean, look at me. What a cute baby. I mean, and look at my dad. These thick, luxurious sideburns, right? And, and in this funky 1970s, polyester shirt. It's, it's a beautiful thing to behold. One time when our oldest daughter, Bethany, was probably three or four years old, she was looking through an old photo album and she came across this picture. And when she saw the picture, she asked me, Daddy, how old was I in this picture? And I, I was a little bit confused. And I, I said to her, Bethany, you're not, you're not in this picture, what do you mean? How old were you in this picture? And she said, you know, I guess I am in this picture. And she pointed to me and said, that's me. And I said to her, oh, Bethany, that's, that's not you. That's me when I was a baby. And then I went and I found another picture that we had, this picture of me and Bethany. And I could understand her confusion because the picture of me as a baby, the picture of Bethany as a baby, look a lot alike. And we have this phrase, that kid is a spitting image of her mom. I don't know why the image is spitting, but that is the phrase that we have. What does it mean that we image God? Well, it means that we look like God. It means that we have a family resemblance to God. But how? I mean, God's not human like we are. He doesn't have a face like we are that we resemble. So what does it mean that we look like God? How does the Bible say that we image God? How is this defined? Well, we see it defined in verse 27, where we read this. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. The image of God, as it is being created on earth, is defined as male and female. Why? Why does God create us male and female? What does that have to do with our imaging of God? What does it have to say about our identity? Right? These are two important questions that come out of this verse. What does this tell us about God? 
And what does this tell us about humanity? So first, what does this tell us about God? There's a place to write this down in your notes. The first thing that this tells us about God is that God is genderful. I didn't make up that word. Someone else made up that word. I'll give you the full quote where I pull that from here in just a minute. But what this is telling us about God is that God is not male, right? God is not a man and God is not female. God is not a woman, but male and female exist in God, in the fullness of God. There is male and there is female. In God, male and female coexist. This is why God declares that Adam is not complete until Eve is created, right? Later on in Genesis chapter two, it says that that Adam was alone and God created a partner for him. Now, this isn't just a statement about Adam being lonely and Adam needs a buddy. This is a statement that the image of God is not yet complete until Eve is created. He's saying that this, what the scriptures are telling us here is that the image of God is not yet on the earth until both Adam and Eve are together on the earth because the image of God necessitates male and female in order to be present on the earth. So the scriptures are telling us here that male and female together image God. It takes both male and female to be the image of God on the earth. I don't image God alone. You don't image God alone. We image God together as male and female. The second thing that this tells us about God is that God is triune. God is Trinity. Right? We, as followers of Jesus Christ, as those who are, are, are people of the Christian faith, we have a confession about who God is. And that confession is that we believe in one God who exists eternally in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This tells us that at the very nature of God, there is oneness and there is threeness. There is unity and there is difference. Both unity and difference are essential to God's being and so essential to his image being on the earth. When God creates his image on earth, he creates humans, male and female. In this, there is oneness, there is unity, there is the equality of male and female in imaging God. But there is also difference. Male and female are different from one another. We are biologically different. Our bodies do different things. There are distinctions between male and female in both the oneness and the threeness are what image our eternally triune God. What does this tell us about humanity? I want to read this quote from a theologian named Heather Loy. This is where I get the word genderfulness from. She writes this, the genderfulness of God was separated into male and female as a way of structuring into creation a basic need for us to be in relationship. 
so that it is in community, not as individuals, that we reflect God's image. What is this saying? This is saying that because God is one in three, because God is triune, when he creates us in his image, he creates us male and female, which means we are created to live in community with one another. Humans are created to live in community. We reflect God's image in fellowship with one another. Male and female is essential to our being in community with each other. As those who image God, we do so in community. We do so as those who belong to God and to neighbor together. There's a second thing that this tells us about humanity. That is that identity is not our possession. Identity doesn't belong to us. My identity is not mine. It belongs to God. It's a gift from God. It is received from him. It belongs to him. We've been looking at the in the beginning story. I said next week, we're going to be looking at the in the now story. The in the now story, the story that our culture tells, says something very different than this. That story says that we belong to ourselves. That story says that we are masters of our own identity, that we are creators of our own selves, that we are determiners of our own selves. But the in the beginning story says something very different. It tells us that from the beginning, we were created to belong to God. That our identity is given to us by him. That our identity exists in service to God. We don't belong to ourselves. We have been bought with a price. This means that at the heart of the in the beginning story of identity and gender is this core truth. You can write this down on your, in your notes. Identity is an offering. Our identity is something that we are called to offer to God for his purposes, for his glory. Friends, I believe that if we're going to have a vision of humanity, if we're going to have a vision of identity and gender that isn't an ideological field of war that leaves people maimed and wounded on the battleground, if we, as the followers of Jesus Christ, are going to have a compelling and gracious vision of what it means to be human, a a compelling and gracious vision of identity and gender, we must be deeply rooted in the story of the triune God, in the story of the cross. 
We must live in the story of, of seeing our whole selves, our identity and our gender as belonging to our good and our loving Father. So as we conclude this time together, I want to ask all of us to make a commitment. I don't know where you are in in your journey around identity and gender. I, I don't know what struggles you have in your life. But I do know that every single one of us is called to recognize that our identity isn't our possession. And it belongs to God. We're going to close with that great old hymn, Holy, Holy, Holy. This is a hymn that focuses us on the God that we image. The triune God in his glory, in his goodness, and in his beauty. And as we sing this song, as our minds and our hearts are are, are focused on him, I want to encourage you, I want to invite you, take this time to offer yourself, your identity, your gender, your life to him. To lay down your life to the one in whose care it is safe because he is good and he is love.